Hello, and welcome to another episode of Thought Architecture. I'm your host, Justin, as always, and here to present you with some thought-provoking ideas, concepts, musings, as you will. Um, so today's one, I wanted to dub it our AI overlord. And there's a specific reason for this. It's Basically, I have a very controversial opinion, which is that I really do believe that an artificial intelligence can better govern humanity than humanity can. Now, most people see this as some kind of way of like bowing down to Skynet or something like that. And I actually don't see it like that. I see it more like the way that humans would use, let's say, a calendar, right? The calendar will dictate what the human does with its time. The calendar will remind the human and like pod and proke the human to do the correct behavior. Uh, and ultimately the calendar will tell the human of like, well, conflicting appointments or things like that, or communicate between humans as well. And so there is this concept that AI is more like a piece of technology to assist us in a particular task. Let's say that. Okay, a piece of technology, particularly written code that is going to take in various inputs, run them through uh, in, you know, some intelligence uh, neural, if you if you know anything about, um, you know, artificial neural networks, it'll run it through its own algorithms that it's learned itself and be able to spit out an outcome. Okay, so if that's the case, what we're looking at is, uh, like I said, technology in order to help achieve uh, a particular goal, all right, a particular result. Great, fantastic. Um, so what is this goal and what am I talking about? Well, there's two particular cases that I'll attach in the show notes below. So the first of which is uh, from a YouTube channel called What I've Learned. And I really like this guy. It's, I think it's an American guy living in Japan. Uh, he really presents a lot of detail, well-researched, thought-provoking ideas. And the one was basically about... Um, the, the issues with the presentation of certain information with regard to farming of cows and how much like methane they actually produce and you know like how much pollution they contribute to, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Very interesting topic. But the thing is is that um, the results of this sways public opinion. Public opinion then also becomes uh, you know platform for politicians to kind of get public uh, or popular uh, support. And so the idea is that our political systems around the world rely basically on popularity. You know, it's not necessarily what is the most pertinent thing to help with, but it's rather a thing to help with. Great. Fantastic. So whatever is the news of the day. So a quick example for you is if you remember back, way back, you know, a few years ago, we did the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge on Facebook, where everyone was getting dunked with ice buckets over their head and donating to ALS research, which is a neuromuscular degenerative disorder, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease because he famously had it. And uh, yeah, actually, it turns out that as a result of all those donations, they actually made a breakthrough isolating the gene that led to this, which then means that they're able to then identify uh, what kind of steps they can take in order to um, you know, treat Lou Gehrig's disease. So there is that light at the end of the tunnel. That's great. But when you look at the numbers there with Lou Gehrig's disease and how many people are affected with ALS and we look at the human species as a whole to help govern the human species, particular measures must be put in place, i.e., what is a health threat that is more, more common than, you know, ALS? Well, cancer, hell of a lot more common. Diabetes, hell of a lot more common. 
alcoholism, a hell of a lot more common. But people have got vested interested, interests <laughs> in these particular systems. And I mean, you know, it's understandable, like cancer, that's a whole load of healthcare. But then the things that cause cancer as well, you know, these things are embedded in our culture. And it's, it's a very difficult thing to kind of um, change. But it's a multi-layered system that requires a complex approach. Now, this is where it comes in as well. So sorry, before I, before I draw that conclusion and show you um, comparatively what I'm talking about, let's you look at one more example, which is, again, attached below, a uh, YouTube channel called uh, CPG Grey. This guy's fantastic, American guy living in London, really, really good content as well, well-researched, uh, well-presented. And he presents, uh, in this one, it was the solution to traffic. And it's very simple. It's this idea that as humans... We are basically monkeys acting and reacting in accordance with responses or perceived responses, you know. And just because someone breaks a little bit too hard or they're following at a distance that's not optimal, then they can actually cause a, a phantom traffic jam or a phantom intersection that can last for miles. You know, one of those times where you've been sitting in traffic and you, um, you know, you wonder, oh, there must be an accident or something, traffic so thick. And then by the time traffic starts moving again, there's absolutely nothing in front of you. And you're like, what the hell was that about? It's usually one of these phantom intersection or phantom, phantom jams because someone braked hard at some point in time because they weren't paying attention. They closed the distance and that forced like other people to brake harder and harder and harder, which forces people who are driving at a highway speed to slow down slash stops, start up again, etc. And then it pushes the entire jam like miles behind as well kind of like a ripple effect in traffic. So the entire point is based on this idea that our human flesh, literally our meat suit, is not well-equipped to deal with these types of things. And so an AI um, car would be able to um, communicate, you know, whatever, with the LiDAR or, you know, uh, 5G or whatever it may be. They're going to be able to communicate with each other and coordinate driving a lot better. So actually self-driving cars, um, or at least an AI-assisted driving car, is going to be able to cut down traffic. And so no more traffic jams. It's going to be able to like cut down on intersection issues and gridlocks and all that kind of stuff. It's going to be able to save a lot more lives at driving at more reasonable speeds, things like that. So there's, there's a lot to say about this, which is numbers that can be crunched by a machine that can't be crunched at the speed of a machine and with the complexity that a machine can crunch those numbers as well. So the limit really of the human brain, it comes down to working memory or what's sometimes referred to also as short-term memory, depends on which model of memory you're talking about. But basically it's the, the brain's central executive uh, network, which is the part of the brain that manages all of our thinking processes and how we handle things and whatever. As humans, we tend to shift a lot of the work once we've been able to group it together, information, you know, like coordination, movements, whatever it is. Once we've done it enough times, we start to group it together and it engages less of the brain in order to achieve a task. So think about it like, uh, let's say you're learning a dance, a particular dance routine. So your brain is really overworked because it can handle, let's say, five pieces of information. But after I've repeated this dance routine 10 times, my brain starts to chunk steps one and two as group one and steps three and four as group two. So it actually starts doubling up and this is called chunking. 
And what happens is over time is we can automate almost the entirety of the dance routine once we've done it enough times and grouped it up well. And so good, good education, bad education, I see it all the time with people where the teachers don't understand this principle and they expect them to do the entire routine on demand at the beginning straight away. And that's a problem. So thinking about this design is exactly the, the reasoning, the rationale behind AI and why it's better for us because an AI brain driving does not have the limits of working memory that a human has. And so it can actually compute and do all this kind of like mental arithmetic incredibly fast because it's not, it's not made with the limits of working memory the same that a human is. But a human's ability to actually contextualize information is far higher than a machine's for now. And as well, remember that a uh, human's ability to think does not define what's great about humanity. You know, we've got empathy, compassion, kindness um, as skills, you know, that actually cause us to invest in people, which means that they pay us back as well. And it actually creates a stronger species. Also, our ability to adapt to different environments, whereas an AI specialized in driving is specialized in driving. If you make that AI and then manage your, I don't know, let's say your kitchen or your fridge, the, con the contents of your fridge, it requires a completely different set of skills. And so instead of mixing all these AIs together, we can create multiple AIs, as in one that manages your car, one that manages your house. And that way, that way we don't have a rise of Skynet, let's say. But then you can have an AI that manages AIs as well. And so you can create a hierarchical system if you want, or like feedback loops, or whatever the case may be. But the simple matter is that an artificial intelligence can gather data, real-world data, without any kind of emotional bias. And that's important. Remember the whole thing about like politicians wanting the support of their voters, and therefore they will talk about the topics that the voters are aware of, not necessarily topics that the voters are unaware of. Like they're, they're not incentivized to do that at all. And so human emotions and human bias get in the way. And for a lot of it, um, it does create problems. Yes, it changes policies um, into things that are more detrimental, especially years down the road, whereas an AI can make um, a lot more of an unbiased judgment of what is going down, what needs to change, and the rate of change that will occur as well. And then, of course, it's not just like a predictive model. It's something that can adapt and mold, but the, and that's the point. It tracks rather than predicts, and I think that that's very important as well. So we use this type of information all the time. If you've got any kind of wearable piece of technology, right, your aura rings, uh, your Fitbits, um, whoop straps, anything like that, they're crunching hardcore numbers. Just something like the aura ring or the whoop strap to, to get HRV measurements, heart rate variability measurements, to be able to tell you that you should be recovering, you slept well, you didn't sleep well, etc. All of that kind of stuff. Those kind of trackers have to crunch incredible numbers. And that's just something small that you wear that you then base, you know, you use that as a platform to make decisions for your next couple of days. Like, who? Hmm, my aura ring says I didn't sleep well. Maybe I should get an extra hour tomorrow night. Or uh, maybe I should take it easy today. Or, huh, it says I'm not recovered well because I didn't sleep well. Maybe I should um, have an easier workout today. So we already use this type of 
AI, this algorithmic intelligence would probably be a better way to say it, you know, uh, because it is literally feeding into something that's more of an algorithm. But AI has transformed now where we feed it data and it creates its own algorithms. So that's fine. But the whole point of this is that we already utilize it to, to kind of inform our decisions. And so if the AI shows that traffic around the world will be better by instituting some kind of like self-driving technology, then that incentivizes people to make their lives better by then creating affordable self-driving technology or um, proposing it as a limitation for city centers or things like that with exceptions to, you know, people who can't afford self-driving cars and things like that or then, you know, policies that uh, give tax credits for self-driving cars, whatever the case may be, but it, it, it is a much more informed opinion in order to base policy off, in order to then manage people. So one of the, the interesting parts about this as well is that um, I've got a particular theory and I'd love to hear thoughts and feedbacks if you've got any ideas on this. And the theory goes like this. Humans were, of course, um, as you know, I'm a huge believer in this mental model that humans have a social brain and humans were adapted to be in social groups. And if we take Dunbar's number as some kind of like uh, grounding for this, not necessarily take it literally, but just that there is a maximum number of relationships that the human brain can manage, uh, social relationships. Uh, no matter how close or far they are, there is a maximum number. So whatever that number is, I'm guessing that you're not going to put that number higher than, let's say, a thousand relationships. A thousand relationships, family, friends, acquaintances, whatever it is. I'm pretty sure you won't be able to get more than a thousand relationships in that you uh, regularly connect with. Even if you did, even if you did, I want you to put that number and connect it with how, what is the population of the current town you live in, okay? It's that simple. And I'm, I'm betting you're already in the tens, if not the hundreds of thousands, which means your brain cannot compute, cannot cannot manage all those relationships and actually maintain those relationships either. I'm sure you could meet everybody, but you couldn't necessarily maintain a friendship or even just an acquaintance with half of these people. You know, you wouldn't be able to really um, have more than one or two exchanges in the street per year, maybe. I don't know. So this is just extrapolation right now. Now I want you to imagine that humans, once we reach a certain number, Humans become very difficult to manage, very difficult. The more that number increases, the more it's difficult to kind of regulate policies. But I want you to also imagine that as soon as you change location, we change the specificity of the policies that affect that area. So quick examples. What am I talking about? Okay, so California is said to have uh, close to 44 million people, I believe it is. I think lower than estimates put it at like 39 million people in California alone. Now, just think about that. 39 million people in California alone. That is more than, if I'm not mistaken, Switzerland, Sweden, Norway combined. Okay? And those are uh, separate sovereign uh, countries. So if we think about this for a second, can you imagine if California governed itself? As in, it had a trade agreement, kind of like the United States being the European Union. Um, but each independent nation had to kind of like meet some requirements to be part of that union or not part of that union, to trade easily with that union or not. And um, in that way, California was its own country. Well, great. But determining that meant that, okay, straight away, just within California, you've got Southern California and Northern California where the climates are very different. And so the business, just agriculturally speaking, is very different as well. And so they have different needs. And so creating policies around that is also already very different. Now, if we look, 
not just at geography, if we start looking at demographics as well. Once you get a certain number of people, it becomes more difficult as well. So if we look at some more financially successful countries, countries that have been able to stabilize themselves very quickly tend to have fewer people. And think about the 2008 financial crisis and how quickly Iceland was able to change their policies where instead of the government bailing out bankers, they actually strung the bankers up. You know, those bankers did jail time, um, things like that. And there was a mass of uh, borrowing, lending uh, of the company from uh, the IMF to be able to bail out the country and create uh, prosperity and recover very quickly. And the reason they could do this was that um, the majority of uh, people in Iceland, I think the total population of uh, the Icelandic is 400,000 or, you know, it's the upper echelons of 300,000. And the idea is that uh, most live close to the capital, which is Reykjavik. And what that meant is that if there was going to be a protest, you could have at least 30 to 40% of the population, 30 to 40% of the population in one place protesting at the same time. Okay. And that is very incentivizing. So I want you to imagine that in the US, you've got a population of close to 330 million people. A third of that is going to be 100 million people. 100 million people. So I think, put it at roughly two to three times the size of the population of California collapsing on on one city in order to protest. How quickly that would um, flip government policy. How, how large that influence would be. That would be incredible. But you can't coordinate that many people. And so something as simple as this is the idea that once your population reaches a certain size, it becomes unmanageable because you cannot coordinate that number of people. And so to do those people justice, it's the idea of, well, you know, once you get to a certain size, it, it starts to become an adult population and it becomes uh, a moment in time where they should seek independence. Kind of like what's happening with Scotland at the moment. Scotland is hovering around 5 million people. It wasn't always the case. And uh, couldn't always fend off the British and all that kind of stuff. If you want to go into like Scottish history, it's quite interesting. But the idea is that it benefited them to, um, to literally have some kind of union with other countries because of the size of them. But now that they're bigger in size... There's a, there's a large push for people to actually have independence. And so if you think about the kind of decisions that could be made, um, the kind of diplomacy that could be had with populations, and I see this number again is 5 million. Um, so I'd be very keen to have a conversation with anyone who's, who's up for it. Uh, otherwise, you know, I, I'd ask you to take a look at their Scandinavian countries where the populations fluctuate between 5 to 10 million that are quite stable and very good at managing themselves. And for a lot of countries, the numbers where they start to get unmanageable and they actually lean to, towards more totalitarian kind of governments or authoritarian governments, they tend to be much more in the higher numbers. Or what happens is they deteriorate into smaller factional um, kind of pieces. And it's very difficult to manage. And so the, the proposal is this idea of a management of a group of people. And so an AI being able to manage uh, pockets of people and actually determine policies that are better for geography and population size is, uh, is, is something that I think is at least, at least worth testing to be able to see if iterations of it could work. Um, so that is my AI 
overlord uh, idea or concept. Um, keen to hear what you've got to say. Um, th- let me know your thoughts. Uh, send me a message. You can find me at uh, Instagram at Justin Nope, J-U-S-T-I-N-N-O-P-P-E. Um, alternatively, you can reply to the emails that you get from the Substack if you're subscribed. And uh, yes, um, let me know what you think. I'm keen to to hear your thoughts. Also, if this uh, this idea, this sparks some notion in you, um, the greatest thing that you could do to help support this is to share this with other people and let you know, like, start a conversation about it. Because ultimately, you know, the better that we can approach, think about a topic, uh, the more informed we are on topics, uh, the better our decisions that we can make. Uh, and that's a legacy thing. It's an agency thing for us to leave the world in a better place than we found it. Number one, but number two is the agency thing, as in like for us to feel like we are actually in control of the world. And I find that that is the biggest argument against an artificial intelligence. It's this idea of fear of being controlled. Well, guess what? In the land of technology and social media and technological wearables, you know, you are already being controlled. And even before that time, in the land of the abacus, you were being controlled by a simple wooden frame with beads on it because you needed it. It's that simple. Anyway, consider them as just a tool to be used. And that's it. Short and sweet. I'll leave you there. I hope you have a wonderful day. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.